The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the eighth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, October 14th, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the course of the war in Ukraine, the state of the world economy, and the ongoing protests in Iran following the death of Masa Amini. We'll start right away with the first set of editorials. On Saturday, an explosion severely damaged the Kersh Bridge, which connects the Crimean Peninsula with Russia. The Kremlin accused Ukraine of being responsible for the attack, and it responded by bombing Kiev and other cities, causing dozens of deaths and injuries. The progress of the conflict in Eastern Europe is precisely the subject of today's first three editorials. Let's start with the opinion of Thomas Avenarius, a columnist for Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung. Supplies for occupation troops in Crimea and southern Ukraine pass through this bridge, the columnist explains. Crimea being one of the territories occupied by Russia since 2014, the attack therefore also has symbolic value for the Ukrainian population and Russia. In any case, Avenarius continues, Putin's war of aggression becomes more disastrous every day. Of the Russian war disaster, Avenarius argues, every Russian citizen should have noticed by now. But Russia is not used to coups. Rather than in a regime overthrow by the people, it is more likely to be the people close to Putin who are thinking about how to save Russia, to save their lives as well. An uprising of his circle of close confidants is imaginable, the columnist concludes, but still unlikely. They are all confidants and all friends who came to power precisely because of the Russian president. But even in this entourage, there may be a handful of sane people who want to sideline the president. We continue to review the latest developments in the war and discuss the Russian reaction to the Kersh Bridge attack with the editorial from the editorial board of the British Financial Times newspaper. Putin's revenge was to unleash mass terror on Ukraine cities Monday, with missiles raining destruction from the sky in the middle of the morning rush hour. The bombardment was the most extensive since the first weeks of the war, although the Kremlin insisted it targeted energy, military command and communications facilities, Russian missiles nevertheless also hit a city park frequented by families with young children, a pedestrian bridge, museum and university buildings, and the German consulate in Kiev. None of these are military targets. For the editors given the targets hit, it can be inferred that either civilian targets were targeted on purpose or that the missiles were highly inaccurate. But the bombing could also signal Putin's desire to want to widen the conflict. To prevent this from happening, the editorial concludes, the response of Western democracies should be continued military and financial support for Kiev, as well as increased surveillance of energy networks, such as the Nord Stream pipeline, which was sabotaged a couple of weeks ago. We end this section with the opinion of journalist Bernard Guerra, published in the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. The journalist looks beyond the day-to-day -day chronicle of the conflict and explains what traits our eventual post-war period should have. According to Guerra, once their victory is sealed, Ukraine and its Western allies, the democracies, will have to make a choice. 
The choice in this case would be between repeating the mistake of the Treaty of Versailles that followed World War I, which laid the foundation for the then-future Nazi regime and thus World War II, or recalling the success of the policy of the hand extended to Germany in 1947, which allowed the establishment of a solid and prosperous democracy. Geda lists seven pillars on which he believes Western strategy should rest, which can be summed up as an attempt to bring Russia and Western countries closer together, also with a view to distancing Russia from the other Asian regime, China. In closing his editorial, Geda acknowledges that Putin cannot remain in power if the post-war period is to resemble the one he feared, and that one must look to the next generation. Today, nothing resembles young Europeans more than young Russians. Let's now talk about the state of the world economy. We remain in Italy and in the newspaper La Repubblica to hear Moises Naim's opinion. Although it is very much in vogue to believe that we have come to the end of globalization, after the crises that have occurred in recent years, for Naim, that globalization has shown a very good resilience. According to data cited by the columnist, even after the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, the volume of international trade decreased by just 3%, from 31% to 28%. And again, after former US President Donald Trump's protectionist policies and the Brexit, the volume of international trade between the European Union and the US and UK declined sharply, but were offset by greater economic integration in East Asia and Africa. In short, protectionist barriers erected in recent years have had a negligible effect on global trade. Of course, all that glitters is not gold. Levels of economic inequality, according to Naim, are unacceptable, and the dragging on of the war in Ukraine could have more than negative consequences. These threats exist. They are serious and real. But they are conjugated to the future, explains the author, who concludes, the challenge we will face will be to figure out how to protect ourselves from the flaws of globalization, how, and make the most of the doors it opens for us. Of a completely different opinion, however, is Henrik Müller, columnist for the German newspaper Der Spiegel. Over decades, the columnist argues, a problematic situation has accumulated that now threatens to result in a serious global economic mess. Politicians and financial markets have long bet on the fact that the globalized economy has almost infinite possibilities for production, and now you receive the receipt for the economic course of the last 40 years. According to Kristalina Georgieva, director of the International Monetary Fund, quoted in the editorial, an international economic collapse is imminent. The crisis that has been unfolding in recent years threatens to slide into recession, the countries of the world that together contribute one-third of the world's economic output. It will look like a recession because real incomes are falling and prices are rising, and the worst consequences will be most evident in the poorest states. This period's inflation shows how profound the changes are in the world's economies. The end game for the global economy has just begun, but Mueller concludes, the way it will end is wide open. That disease and war are shaping our economy, referring to COVID and the war in Ukraine is now common knowledge. 
the editorial by Martin Wolf, an economic analyst for the British newspaper Financial Times, underscores this point, but also provides a number of suggestions on how to cope economically with the crisis we are going through. There are six points, according to Wolf, on which governments and financial institutions should focus. First, defeat inflation and coordinate fiscal and monetary policy. Second, protect vulnerable people. For Wolf, the cost of living crisis is the worst time to cut public spending on the least well-off, as they will be the ones hit hardest by the crisis. More public spending is also likely to drive up public debt. So the next point is develop a better framework for managing debt difficulties. The next point recognizes that managing the world economy requires cooperation. An obvious example is Putin's war. Is it impossible to convince China that this disaster may threaten its interests as well, the journalist wonders. Finally, there is the biggest problem, climate. But although we are already behind schedule, according to the International Monetary Fund, the economic costs of immediate and decisive action to reduce emissions are modest, especially when compared to the benefits. And perhaps climate should be our first concern. What we do, or most likely don't do, about emissions over the next decade could determine the future of this planet as a home for our own and other species. The last editorial for today concerns the protests of thousands of women still ongoing in Iran. The protests were sparked by the death of Masa Amini on September 16th, a woman who has been arrested by Iran's moral police because she was wearing her headscarf in an inappropriate manner according to the country's law. Protests intensified further following the death of another young woman who had participated in the demonstrations, Nika Shakarami. The first editorial comes from across the channel and from the British newspaper The Times. What began with women filming themselves without veils and cutting their hair has now spilled over into demonstrations across the country, defying the violent response of the security services. The British editors write. The regime for its part seeks to suppress demonstrations with violence as it has done in the past whenever mass movements of citizens have taken to the streets and squares. It happened in 1999, 2006, 2009 and 2019 when as many as 1,500 poor Iranians were killed. Their only crime had been to protest the sharp rise in fuel prices. Many expect these protests to end the same way. An estimated 70 protesters have already been killed and many more arrested, although it is impossible to know the exact numbers, the editorial explains. Yet there is something different about these protests that should worry the regime. This month's protests are led mainly by young women and students and suggest a profound social change in the attitudes of the younger generation, which will not be easily suppressed by violence. These social changes are not likely to go away. The closing reads, This time, the regime may be more able to get away with using violence to deny women's rights. The regime's difficulties and fears are also the subject of the editorial published in the French daily Le Monde. Not only social changes, but also lack of participation. In the last Iranian presidential election in 2022, just 49% of eligible voters took part. 
a sign that the regime speaks only to itself. The ongoing protests are of course being followed by other Middle Eastern countries, particularly Sunni-majority countries, historically rivals of Shiite-majority Iran in matters of religion. These countries are quietly observing, but not only because of a reservation dictated by prudent respect for the principles of non-interference in the eternal affairs of others. The fear of the neighboring regimes is that the universality of the slogan women, life, freedom, as well as the death to the dictator shouted in the streets of Tehran and other cities could easily be taken up by other Middle Eastern populations oppressed by dictatorial regimes. This is why their leaders probably harbor the same fear of the Iranian regime towards the flame that the brutality of Amini's death ignited in Tehran. We conclude today's press review with a contribution published in the Spanish newspaper El País, written by two Iranian academics themselves, Rosa Rabani and Arash Arjamandi. The protests born out of Amini's death do not call for the abandonment of the hijab, which is only a symbol. Iranian women, in fact, are victims of other obscenities and cruelties that are not so well known. For example, rape and abuse of all kinds almost always go unpunished. Or again, many women are forced to marry for hours, days or weeks in exchange for money, a form of prostitution that Shiite clergy protect and bless with liturgy. They often need permission from their husbands, father or brothers even to carry out legal transactions. And all this is done falsely in the name of the Quran, which is interpreted by the clergy to satisfy their whims and interests in the most bizarre and often ridiculous ways. But the change that women demand is also economic. There is no more unprejudiced economists who do not know that gender inequalities hinder the prosperity of a society as a whole. There are universal principles that all people must observe, write the two academics who conclude Iranian society seems to have become fully aware of them. We end this episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza. And at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. See you next week. <laughs>